Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. I'm working on the idea of surrounding the White House, listening to the messages from listeners who've called in with suggestions, and also filling out the forms for a permit for a protest on the sidewalk that runs around the White House. But today, I want to play an interview with a journalist who was arrested and thrown in jail two weeks ago, February 1st, while covering the ongoing protest at Standing Rock. Jenny Monet is an independent journalist who's been covering the protests at Standing Rock for the past six months, producing print, video, and radio stories for the Center for Investigative Reporting, the PBS NewsHour, Indian Country Today, High Country News, PRI's The World, Yes Magazine, and she has her own podcast called Still Here, which I highly recommend. On February 1st, Monet was covering the arrest of 75 protesters, or water protectors, who were building a new camp, a ring of teepees up on top of a hill above the Cannonball River, a safer, healthier spot for when the spring floods start happening. Law enforcement officers came up the hill to arrest the protesters, and Monet met them, showed them her press credentials, and they told her to leave the area. She complied walking back down the hill, but when she got to the bottom, she was arrested and charged with criminal trespass and rioting, which is a felony. She spent 30 hours under detention, most of it in the Morton County Jail, stripped down to her long underwear. Last week, on February 8th, just after the Army Corps of Engineers announced they'd approved the permit for the Dakota Access Pipeline to go under the Missouri River, I called Jenny at the house she's been renting in Cannonball, close to the protest camps. It was kind of late at night, and she'd just finished filing a story, so I decided not to ask her about her arrest and just concentrate on what it's been like in camp and what's happening now. The phone connection was a bit funky at times. Scott? Yeah, yeah, good. So yeah, you, you got it got it going? I hope that you don't hear this fan, this heater that's kind of at a distance going on and off. All right. Um, the phone's kind of cutting out a little bit, but, well, I was wondering if maybe we could go back to December. Uh, we were both there at the, for the protest on December 4th when the veterans came, but um, I was only there for a few days twice, and you've been there a long time now. I was wondering if you could describe sort of what it was like then and how it changed the past couple of months because it's been two months since then. Oh my gosh, night and day difference, Scott. Huh. Night and day. If you recall that beautiful day of December 4th where you had, by some accounts, some say there were 10,000 people, 12,000 people, 14,000 people, whatever number you want to put in that area, you had thousands of people at that main Ochetishikoe camp holding hands and crying and celebrating and lighting fireworks because, you know, people power had prevailed that day. Voices were heard and it was really a magical moment. And um, 
So on December 4th, it was the Department of Army who came forward with a decision by the um, Assistant Secretary Joellen Darcy. She made the decision to halt construction indefinitely of the Dakota Access Pipeline until an environmental impact statement could be conducted. It's what the tribe had been advocating for all along and what it had asked of its water protectors to stand up in solidarity for Standing Rock 4. And so the EIS uh, was, was a go at that point. But also what was also really wonderful at that time in uh, Darcy's statement was that she also said that it needed to consider historic treaties of the tribes. And I can't remember in my, you know, decade long experience of almost exclusively focusing on Indian country and issues impacting Indian country where the a federal agency has hit the pause button on infrastructure projects or anything like it to say, hey, we need to consider those treaties by those Indians. <laughs> so this was, you know, monumental. It was unprecedented. Everyone knew it. But I should also add that even with all of that cele- celebratory vibe that was happening down there, I mean, there was also the the reality that this fight was not over, that the Department of Army's decision was, you know, just one of the many battles won in the larger fight and the larger struggle. And as we're seeing tonight, I mean, you know, that's, that was true. So that was December 4th. There was, it was a sunny day. There was a lot of celebrating going on. And then the next day, the weather turned bad. Uh, there was a blizzard. A <laughs> really a bad. People, yeah, really bad blizzard. And really cold, really high winds and snowing. And there was kind of a mass exodus from the camp. Yeah. And, you know, it was clear that some people are going to leave and also that some people are going to stay and try to make it through the winter. Uh, so what was it like, you know, the past two months, the weather-wise, and just people staying in camp? For, you know, what was it like in camp the past yeah. couple of months? Well, so you got to experience a North Dakota blizzard. And yeah. as you experienced, they're, they're no joke, right? I mean, snow drifts build up everywhere and the snow really does accumulate really fast. And the temperatures are so cold. So, I mean, it was a real threat to be in those conditions. And a lot of people, I think, just really weren't prepared, even though they thought they were prepared. Um, But in the months or in the weeks, rather, following, there was another blizzard over Christmas. It actually hit Christmas night. And I was in this house that I'm renting, not far from where the camps are. But I just remember in the middle of the night, looking out my window, you know, it's all dark inside and out and outside. And it's just harrowing. The wind is howling. The trees are almost bent sideways. And these snowdrifts are just, you know, just so horizontal. It was, it was amazing. I've never seen anything quite like it. Even the locals were, were kind of marveling over it. So, it was pretty powerful. And I have to say, like, you know, as I was kind of marveling over it myself, I was also just really concerned about the water protectors and the people who remained out there. Um, 
I did go and check on once I we all dug ourselves out of the snow. I did go back to camp and check on some people, and I have to say, they're the people who stayed, the people who who vowed to stay. They they were prepared to stay. They their tents, their teepees, their their yurts were completely cozy inside. So cozy that some guys, you know, just were too hot. They had to go outside to get cool. What did people do during the day? I mean, how did they spend their time? So in early, early, well, throughout December, let's just say throughout December, most people were just kind of focused on pure survival, winter survival. I know that I talked with many water protectors who felt that, you know, part of their daily ritual was getting water, chopping wood, finding out when when the kitchens were going to be open because unlike what we saw at the height and the peak of the movement where the kitchens were all there, you could pretty much depend on one of maybe even a dozen kitchens to be open and serving food. Now that number had dwindled to maybe three kitchens and not, and the timing was kind of all off and people were just kind of unsure, you know, when, when they might get a, get a dinner. Um, I think breakfast was completely ruled out because everyone was too cold to venture out of their dwellings, you know, until noon or, or, or after. And so, yeah, camp was pretty quiet a lot, to be honest with you throughout, um, December, but even in early January, and it was interesting to see who was still there. How many people were there in December and January? Yeah, I'd say through December. I mean, I think the number was somewhere around 1,200 people. That's kind of what the popular belief was. Um, a lot of people stayed. And around the holidays, you saw, a, you know, a, a definite wave of, of people leaving to go home to family around the holidays. And after the holidays and certainly around new year, you really start to see the number kind of be at an even nine to a thousand people. Yeah. But right now, um, the numbers are definitely at an all time low. I would say that anywhere from four to 500 water protectors and, and I, these are generalizations, but yeah, that's what I've, that's what I've been able to kind of see from meetings and people just kind of walking around. All right. Um, well, I was wondering, when they got together, did the people have meetings? Did they talk about plans, what to do? Yeah. Um, there was a meeting uh, even last night. Did they night. get along or did they argue? or? No, there's, there's most of the time uh, when there are kind of debates raised about disagreements or whatever, I feel like there's... It's the anti-argument. It's a big, it's a big, um, you know, discussion where everybody gets a chance to weigh in and express their feelings and emotions. And there's a lot of respect for that. And that, I get example of that, for instance, is um, the day in the aftermath that the tribal council unanimously voted to clear out the camps. By the time that the news had trickled down to the camps, a couple of days later, at the main Ochetti Shikoi camp, there was a 
camp meeting in the geodesic dome that still sits in the center of the camp. That's basically the, considered the community center uh, in these winter months because there's a there's a, um, heating lanterns in there, but also a wood fire, and it's just a nice space to be. And so um, what you had was a meeting that was kind of intended to talk about, well, what should we do and where should we go? But instead, what it really turned into was everybody kind of speaking up speaking their minds about, you know, how they felt about, about how the council voted and why they're there and, you know, what the movement means to them. And so it was just kind of like this big therapy session in a way. Could you explain what they, they about the council vote, when it happened and what, what happened? Yeah, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Council meeting on January 20th, the day that President Trump was getting inaugurated, the council held this day-long meeting. Actually, it was maybe half the day, but they were there talking about just regular tribal council stuff, but they were also there to vote on whether to close the camps. And all of them, all of the 12 council members voted yes to do that. And so that community... That community has just grown really weary of the water protectors and the visitors there. They were at one time very supportive and gracious host, but I think that a lot of the um, residents there had been turned off by certain incidents that they've had with the water protectors. Um, yeah, there were some hard feelings, and it just kind of swelled and now the community cannibal. I mean, it's not even like a maybe that they want the camps to continue. They just want them gone. So they passed this resolution or they agreed that everybody should leave the camps, they should clean up the camps, and that the actual physical protests should stop. Is that accurate? Is that right? That is accurate. I, I think right. the the position of Standing Rock is that, you know, the fight is in your hometown, is in your city. And... Um, so the situation now is that the, the remaining campers have until February 22nd before the Army Corps of Engineer has deemed that property closed. And while they've stated no specific threats in how they will respond to that deadline, it's been very clear that there's absolutely no... There's no turning back on this. Already the tribe has already hired contractors and issued orders to the BIA to help in the cleanup process. The BIA is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so, um, you know, it's still unclear what kind of force may, if any, may be involved if people remain on that lands and refuse to go. Could you explain what happened today? What what did, what happened today? Yeah, so what happened today, February 8th, was kind of like the last nail in the coffin in my in my opinion. Um, the US Army Corps of Engineers granted the essential easement that the Dakota Access Pipeline needs to complete construction and burrow underneath the Missouri River and its reservoir, Lake Oahe. 
I spoke with energy, a spokeswoman for Energy Transfer Partners shortly after the easement was approved uh, around 6 this evening, Central Time, and she assured me that drilling would begin immediately. And so um, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they're working on the pipeline right now. Um, my sources have told me that there have been construction workers kind of waiting in the wings in, in nearby hotels in Bismarck and, you know, just waiting for the green light to get to work. And the tribe's not going to try to fight it? The tribe might just let them go and, and drill a hole? I think the tribe is going to probably explore every option it can for any kind of fighting that's left in this. But, you know, even tonight, the timeliness of an article posted in the Washington Post um, today was this really sad and somber headline of Chairman Archambault, the tribal chairman here, who said he felt really betrayed by the Trump administration. He had flown to Washington, D.C. for talks about the DAPL on Tuesday, yesterday, and when he landed at Reagan National Airport, he got a phone call that said, you basically should not have even gone there because they've, you know, they're, they have no intention of wanting to hear what you have to say. They're going to they're gonna approve this pipeline. Big blow. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen? I know things are kind of up in the air. They're happening so quickly. But what do you think are the possibilities at this point? I think that the camps are going to move. Water protectors are going to stay. Things are going to get a little intense around here. I don't know how or why. I worry that the people who are more impassioned about this might try to um, take matters into their own hands in some way. And, you know, I mean, the warning signs are all there. People have openly said, even eight days ago, a woman went on her live Facebook feed and, you know, basically said, you know, we might just put our lives on the line on this one. And um, people are just that impassioned over obviously the environment, but so many other elements around what a Trump administration represents and all the other disparities that are beholden of, you know, kind of playing out and around and answering to this movement. So I hope that's not the case. I've actually refrained over the many weeks of even kind of bringing about that kind of fear mongering. But I only say that now because in the wake of the decision tonight, the Morton County Sheriff who has led the campaign against the water protectors here, wasted little time in calling on President Trump for federal support, meaning his repeated call for U.S. Marshals to get involved, which he's, he's, he's said numerous times throughout the movement. Because before it was always at the state level. The law enforcement agencies were state, like the National Guard. Yeah, they've, they've gotten creative in terms of how to build up their forces. But even under the Obama administration, uh, Sheriff Kirkmeyer had been calling on uh, the federal government to send in the marshals and never got a response. And actually, he was quite critical of the administration because of it. So I find it interesting that that was included in his very brief statement tonight. All right. 
Do you expect the large numbers of people to come back? Do you think people will come back and support? I don't know. I feel like there's enough conversation and dialogue on the internet for people to realize that the tribe is really just trying to get people out. I also feel like there's enough people connected to the water protectors on the ground who are still here for them to say, you know, it's kind of tense out here and it's not what you thought. It, it's not how it was back in August, September, October, you know, these really beautiful high times that were here. I mean, it's just so different from that. Not just because of the weather. The weather is definitely a part of that, but also just the just because the camps are 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 dismantling. They're not there, and there's a big there's a big transition, and everyone's in flux, and everyone doesn't know what's coming next day to the next. There's a huge federal, you know, Bureau of Indian Affairs agent presence, and they are, you know, there's paranoia that they are you know, scoping out people for, you know, uh, outstanding warrants as a way to clear out the camps even faster, even though they've vowed that they're here for humanitarian relief efforts. And it's just really tense right now. It's really intense. Um, all right. Um, that was, that's really good. I don't really want to, uh, I mean, there's a lot more questions, but I don't, we'd be here for hours. So, um, <laughs> all right. Okay. I'll okay. talk to you later. Okay, bye. You've been listening to an interview with independent journalist Jenny Monet, who's been living at the Standing Rock Indian Reservation for the past two and a half months, covering the pipeline protest. She was arrested February 1st, charged with trespassing and rioting while just doing her job. I didn't ask her about the arrest because it was late at night, and also, I think it's better to read her account of the arrest on her website, JennyMonet.com. She has photos and video there, and you can subscribe to her podcast, Still Here, which I highly recommend. There's a link to it on our website, HomeBrave.com. I'll be back in a few days with an update on surrounding the White House. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>